The Somme village of Villers Bretonneau marked the final approach to the city of Amiens, Germany's great prize in the spring of 1918. Here, Australian and British soldiers made their stand. Here, tanks fought tanks for the first time. And from here, many decades later, Australia would recover its unknown soldier. What do we find today at Villers Bretonneau? We recently had a very good podcast supporters evening where we commemorated the 105th anniversary of the Third Battle of Ypres, often known as the Battle of Passchendaele. And we looked at some aspects of the fighting and some images, private images taken by soldiers who were there and some photographs connected to terrible destruction that took place on that landscape during the year 1917. These podcast supporters' evenings that we have are for our supporters on Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon. And occasionally we open them up to everyone and there'll be one of those coming up fairly soon, I hope. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that simply by doing what you're doing now, by listening to the podcast. And the listening figures and your continued support by downloading the podcast is greatly appreciated. But if you wanted to extend your support by going to buy me a coffee or patreon then how does that work you just simply log on to those websites and with buy me a coffee you can make a one-off donation and with patreon you can pledge an amount every month and to say thank you for your support then we have these monthly supporters evenings a couple of months ago we did a live stream from Eep at the Many Gates and with some trips coming up in the autumn I certainly hope to repeat that to do a live stream from a battlefield location somewhere on the Western Front. And in addition to that I'm aiming to bring in a regular newsletter for our podcast supporters which will feature some news from the battlefield, some articles and you'll be able to contribute an article yourself to that if you want to and hopefully I'll be able to share some of the photographs that I've got in my private collection with you via that newsletter. So if you want to support the podcast you can go on to the links on the podcast website oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find links to both Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon on there. But it's not something that you have to do. Like I say, your support just by listening to the podcast is greatly appreciated. One of the other things that I've done, which everyone can access in the last few weeks, is set up a Substack. Now, this is a not really a new piece of software, I don't think. It's essentially a kind of blog, really. And what I aim to do with it is to write a few stories connected with some of the history of both the First and the Second World War, and use it to highlight anniversaries and other aspects of military history and battlefield history. Now all you've got to do to access that is to go on to Substack and search for me, for Paul Reed, or you can go through the links on my Twitter profile. And as I record this, it's the anniversary of the Battle of Amiens, and there's a post about to go out about that, for example. It's free to sign up to, you just give it your email address and then you get notifications with the posts in it or you can go on to the Substack Reader, an app that you can download onto your smartphone or your tablet. So look out for that as well. In terms of the podcast, this is the last episode until early September. There's a bit of a mini break coming up as I'm out on the battlefields for a few weeks and I'm hoping that I might return 
with some recordings that we can use for a future episode. But there's lots coming up in September and through the autumn into the winter. So stay tuned for that and keep an eye on the usual social media feeds of Twitter and Facebook. For now, we strap on our virtual boots once more and head out onto the battlefields, the battlefields of the Somme once again, but a different part of the Somme this week, a part of the Somme connected to the battlefields of 1918. We're beginning this week's journey across the old front line just east of the city of Amiens. Amiens on the Somme is the capital city of that département, the main city in that region of northern France, and it sits at an important juncture of roads and railways, and because of that took on a great symbolism and importance during the First World War. When the British took over the main Somme sector in 1915 and 16 from the French, Amiens was the route in which soldiers came up to the front line. And where we are beginning our journey this week is just east, as I say, of the city at a little village. It was a separate village during the First World War, now part of the outer suburbs of Amiens, Longo. And we're close to the railway yards at Longo. Now, we often talk about the importance of trains on this podcast. AJP Taylor wrote that book, War by Timetable, about the opening phase of the First World War and the use of trains to get men to the front and supplies and everything else. But from a wider perspective, right throughout the war, railways were so important to feed the war with men, with guns, with ammunition, supplies, and everything else. And this railway siding area at Longo was used by the British Army both in 1916 to mainly then bring up supplies which were then distributed by lorry up towards the forward areas. We've looked at that method of supply again in a previous podcast but by 1918 with the front lines east of the city of Amiens this was then used to bring up men. Now what we see today at Longo is a modern railway siding. We can see some vestiges of the Second World War, some concrete bunkers used as air raid shelters because this area was widely bombed by the Allies during the Second World War because just as it had been used as a resupply route in the Great War, it was then used by the Germans to resupply their troops in Normandy following the D-Day landings there in 1944. So important railway junctures like this were regularly bombed by the US Air Force, the Royal Air Force, and indeed other Allied bombing formations during that period. But where we are really is an important location, and we begin here because what we're looking at is the Somme from the perspective of 1918, from essentially defeat to victory in some ways. Certainly by the summer of 1918, the path to victory was beginning with the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 and the Black Day of the German Army, when the German Army's line on the Somme was broken and it signalled the last 100 days of the war. And the key to victory in that period was what we see here, was railways, was supply. It wasn't just bombs and bayonets on the front line, it was the ability to feed your troops, to bring up more ammunition, bullets for their rifles and machine guns, shells for their guns, petrol for their tanks. The increased use of tanks in 1918 was one of the war-winning weapons that we employed on the battlefield and everything else that the war required. So it's easy to pass by, easy to forget the importance of these railways as we travel around the battlefields of the First World War. 
but we start off here because of its importance and we head out onto what became those fields of victory that led to the end of the war in 1918. As we leave the railway marshalling yards at Longo, we take the old Roman road that goes east from Amiens and heads out towards the village of Villers-Bretonneux, Villers-Bretonneux. That's the area that we're going to be looking at during the course of this podcast. And it takes us to another, what was then another separate village, Glissy, where there's an airfield even today, where during this period the Royal Air Force flew from in support of the troops on the grounds around Villers-Bretonneux and the valley of the Somme. And it takes us along that Amiens-Saint-Quentin, Amiens-Saint-Quentin road that runs right through this part of the Western Front battlefields, a road of great symbolism to the French who fought in this area in 1916 and indeed in the earlier periods of the war as well. It was the road which the Germans withdrew along in 1917 in the retreat to the Hindenburg Line and then in March 1918 it was the key axis of advance of the Germans in the Operation Michael or the Kaiserschlag, the Kaiser's Battle, as they broke through on the Somme front and were heading towards Amiens. Amiens because of the railways that we've seen at Longo, was a key objective of the German forces during that period. And it takes us out into the vast open fields that we associate with the battlefields of the Somme. We can see the rolling chalk downland ahead of us. This area is quite wooded compared to other parts of the Somme landscape, and we can see some of those woods coming up ahead. And that takes us towards what was the last line of defence which we can see ahead of us in the distance beyond the village of Villers-Bretonneux, the high ground, the ridge line that was used to defend against the German advance in this area in March of 1918. The road brings us into the outskirts of Villers-Bretonneux and we see on the left-hand side the signs for a military cemetery, Adelaide Cemetery. Now this is a battlefield closely associated with the Anzacs, with the Australian Imperial forces who fought here in those crucial battles during the spring of 1918 and then we're here again for the breakout battle in August of that year. The cemetery itself was started in June 1918 following the fighting that we're going to look at around the village of Villers-Bretonneux and it was then used by both the 2nd and the 3rd Australian divisions to bury their dead from that static period following the stopping of the German advance and the establishment of a new line here. By August 1918, there were 90 graves here in what is now Plot 1 of the cemetery. This is common with Imperial War Graves Commission, now Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemeteries, where later burials were added to it. Plot 1 is almost always the original burials in the cemetery. And these are rows A to E, where we'll see some of these Australian soldiers killed in that period following the initial fighting and just before the big push of the 8th of August. That push closed the cemetery. Now, why was this? Well, in the advance, which was in most cases advances of miles into enemy territory, burial officers were moving up behind the advancing troops. Canadians to the south, Australians in this area, British to the north and they were making battlefield burial sites to bury the dead. The Australians regrouped a lot of theirs into cemeteries like Villers-Bretonneux, which we'll see later on, and also Heath Cemetery at Harbonnier. And the Canadians kept a lot of their 
battlefield cemeteries in that sector. And that's a journey for another day following the Canadians through those 8th of August 18 battlefields, seeing the places and following the places with the cemeteries like beacons to their advance through that ground where they fought. The cemetery here was closed, but post-war it was selected as a site to create a permanent cemetery. So after the armistice, smaller cemeteries in the area around Villas Bretonneau were concentrated into this site, and 864 graves covering March to September of 1918 were moved in here. Total burials now are 522 Australian, They're the predominant burials in the cemetery, and thus Adelaide, the name, is greatly appropriate for those burials. 363 British, 22 Canadian, and 48 whose unit is not known. Of these, 262 are unidentified, and there are four special memorials. Now, when the cemetery was made post-war, and there were still wooden crosses here before the placement of headstones, there were a number of unit crosses within the cemeteries. We mentioned these quite a lot in recent podcasts where particular units that fought in an area put up a wooden memorial and often incorporated that into the nearby cemetery. Now, none of these wooden crosses survive after the passage of over a century. That's not unsurprising if they were left out in the landscape, but quite a lot of them were taken back home, wherever home was. And in here, there were quite a few Australian crosses, which may well be either in the Australian War Memorial at Canberra or in other places within Australia. But there was a cross to a British unit as well, the 22nd Battalion Durham Light Infantry. They were a pioneer battalion. So every infantry division had one of these, and they carried out infantry tasks when required, but pioneer battlefield tasks assisting the infantry in attacking positions destroying positions or working on the trenches when they were just holding the line. And the 22nd DLI were the pioneers to the 8th Division, which is a British formation that took part, a key unit that took part in the fighting here in March, in April of 1918. This cross was removed as well, and I've had a cursory glance to see if it was one of the crosses in Durham Cathedral, and it's not there to the Territorial Battalions of the Durham Light Infantry, So perhaps this ended up in another church somewhere in County Durham. If anyone knows where that is, I'd be very interested to discover that. But before we get to looking at some of the graves in this cemetery, let's have an overview of the fighting of the village of Villas Bretonneau, where we are now. We're on the western side of the village, and it's quite a large village, Villas Bretonneau, that sits on that main Roman road that runs between Amiens and Saint-Quentin and to the south, the railway line comes from Amiens through this area and eventually heads down towards Paris. So it was an important location and one of the larger villages that potentially could stop a German advance coming through here in March of 1918, surrounded as it was by some high ground to the north, the east and to the south and a wooded area around some woods called Hangard Wood to the south as well. In March 1918, the Germans launched their spring offensive. On the 21st of March, that Kaiserschlag that we've mentioned, the Kaiser's Battle, broke through in the area near Saint-Quentin, and the Germans advanced down this Roman road towards Amiens. Why Amiens? Well, we mentioned the importance of the railways. If the Germans could reach that and overrun the railway system there, it could break the system of supply for the British forces on the northern part of the Western Front and damage the system of supply to the French forces in this area and perhaps carve a line between the British sector and the French sector 
and the Germans might be able to achieve some kind of battlefield victory. They were fearful at this stage of the war of the arrival of the Americans. America had entered the war the previous April. It had this vast but untrained army, which was not yet ready to be put into the field in any big numbers. But by the spring of 1918, it was really only a matter of months, if not weeks, before sizable groupings of American troops did arrive on the battlefield and the Germans knew that that would tip the balance in the favour of the Western Allies. So this was one last roll of the dice, really, by the Germans to try and end the war in Germany's favour. The Germans achieved great advances in that spring of 1918 in this area, but at some considerable cost, often tens of thousands of casualties per day in breaking through the British and Commonwealth lines. Within a week, they'd reached the old 1916 Somme battlefields and the town of Albert, for example, had been captured by the Germans. And south of the River Somme, where we are now, around Villers Bretonneux on the 28th of March, the Germans reached this area and the British, holding the ground just outside the town, reinforced by Australian troops who'd been brought down to take part in the fighting here, were initially stopped. This was the southern sector now of the British Army on the Western Front. South of Villers Bretonneux was the French. The Australians, who would play such a key role in this, were at this stage of the war as yet not in their own Australian core. That would come as a consequence of some of the later fighting. The Australian divisions were scattered into a number of different army corps, and that meant they were on different points of the Western Front. But largely, they'd been involved in just holding the ground, particularly up in the Ypres salient during that winter of 1917-18, following the terrible battles at Ypres that they'd taken part in in September and October of that year. Some of their troops had been in the area around the Bluff, for example, and others had been holding the sector along the Messines Ridge near to Hollerbeek. And these units were moved down. The Australian Imperial Force was an all-volunteer force. There was no conscription compared to other parts of the British Expeditionary Force that were largely conscript armies by this stage of the war. The Australians were all volunteers, but having had that winter period to rest and recuperate, they'd built up the strength of their battalions once more. So when they were brought down to take part in this fighting, they were considered pretty strong units compared to some of the British units who were here, who in many cases had been fighting from the very beginning of the German breakthrough on the 21st of March. So at this point in late March of 1918, although the Germans advanced a, a heck of a distance from St Quentin all the way to here, the advance had been stalled by the defence of this ground here and north of the Somme by the defence with British troops of the ground west of Albert and north of the town up towards the old battlefields around Bouzancourt and Beaumont Hamel and locations like that. But the Germans still had their eyes on the prize, and that prize was Amiens. So the next attack came in at 6.30 in the morning on the 4th of April 1918. The line around Villers-Bretonneux at that stage were held by units of the 14th Light Division. Now this was a unit that had literally been in battle for almost every single day since the 21st of March. And on that very first day when it had held the line close to the city of Saint-Quentin, it had come under a devastating bombardment and many of its positions had been overrun. 
So the battalions that were left from this formation that were still fighting here were greatly depleted in terms of numbers and one can only estimate what their morale was like after that kind of pounding from artillery and continuous fighting over day after day. So it's not surprising that when the Germans attacked in strength, the positions held by the battalions of that unit collapsed. Alongside them were battalions of the 18th Eastern Division. This was a unit that we've mentioned quite a lot of times on the podcast. They fought very heavily in the Somme Battle of 1916, from the attacks to the southern sector of the Somme, into places like Trones Ward, and then later on in the fighting around Thiepval. They remained on the Somme until the spring of 1917, and then were involved in the fighting at Arras and at Third Ypres. They too had been heavily involved in the withdrawal across the Somme landscape in the southern sector, close to the Somme Canal and the Somme River, and they came under a similar attack on this day, and their positions also buckled under the weight of the German advance. At this stage in the battle around Villers-Bretonneux, Australian battalions, so strong and had been brought down specially for the fighting in this area, were really used in a piecemeal fashion to kind of plug the gap when actions like this took place and ground was lost. But what it meant now was that Villers-Bretonneux sat in a kind of salient with the town still in British hands but with the lines tightly around it and the Germans in possession of much of the high ground and some of the wooded areas to the south. During this period of impasse, of stalemate, the Germans bombarded Villers-Bretonneux with gas and in particular on the 17th of April, the gas that was used against the Australian positions that defended the town resulted in over a 1,000 Australian casualties. And then the next attack, the critical attack really, came in at 6am on the 24th of April 1918. Now by this stage the Germans were also fighting up in northern France and in Flanders. They'd launched the next stage of their offensive on the 9th of April 1918 to break through in that part of the Western Front. So it meant they were essentially trying to fight two major offensives in different locations on the British sector of the front which was a tricky prospect considering the casualties that they'd lost in the March 1918 fighting. But that prize of Amiens was still ahead of them and they were determined to try and break through here. The German assault on this day was not only supported by assault troops going in and huge amounts of artillery, it was additionally supported by 13 tanks. German tanks, A7Vs, and also captured British tanks, captured in largely the Battle of Cambrai the previous year, Mark IV tanks being used against the British, against the people that had manufactured these vehicles. The Germans really didn't truly understand tanks in the First World War and didn't really invest or believe in them, something, of course, that would be very different in the conflict that would rage through this area a generation later in the Second World War, But by 1918, they realised that they were useful battlefield weapons and they employed them in that period of the spring of 1918 through towards the end of the war in ever decreasing numbers as their inability to create new tanks and deploy them was hampered by the overall conditions of the war, particularly in terms of the submarine blockade of Germany and the effect that had not just on the civilian population but its industry as well. But we can't underestimate that the German use of tanks and the effect that that had on the morale of British troops, which saw these weapons 
as a British weapon. Many of these men would have fought alongside tanks in the, the battles of 1916-17 and suddenly seeing their own tanks being used against them could not have been a good prospect for these soldiers. The line here around Villers-Bresseneau on this day was a mix of different units, Australian battalions that had been brought down, what was left of units like the 8th Division, some 18th Eastern Division units and also a battle group, if that's even the right word for it, of units from the 58th London Division. But the Germans pressed hard and the town was overrun and now pretty much nothing lay in the path of the German advance in that final stretch of the old Roman road leading into Amiens itself. But the commanders on the ground, both British and Australian, coordinated their troops, not always perfectly, but a night attack went in on the night of the 24th, 25th of April 1918, when both British units and Australian units recaptured what was left of the village of Villers-Bretonneau, a town that had sat behind the lines for most of the war, pretty much undamaged, its civilian population intact, was now in ruins following just a few weeks of fighting. It just shows how the destruction of the First World War could strike so quickly, so violently, and so devastatingly in places like this. And symbolically for the Australian troops who were fighting here, Villers-Bretonneau, a victory, was achieved on Anzac Day 1918. On the 25th of April 1918, Villers-Bretonneau was retaken from the Germans. The Germans were pushed back to the other side of the village and that really would mark the high tide mark of their advance here in the spring of 1918. Some of the Australian troops who fought here and some of those who died when you look at their service records were veterans of Gallipoli, men who had landed on the shore at Gallipoli three years before and here they were fighting now in a very different war to the one that they'd seen in 1915. Australia forever obsessed in many ways with Gallipoli in recent decades, thankfully has realised that with 45,000 dead on the Western Front, this was really their major theatre of operations in the Great War and one that needed to be remembered, something that we'll return to later on in this podcast. So this new line that was taken following the recapture of Villers-Bresseneau was not a perfect line of defence, but it was clear that with the failure here and the continued German attacks up in Flanders, then this was an end to the German assaults in this area. And it would be a matter of time for the Allies to rebuild their forces to fight again and push the Germans back, which would come eventually on the 8th of August 1918 with that Battle of Amiens. The cemetery, which today probably gets far more Australian visitors than British ones, being south of the River Somme, most British visitors go to the 1916 area and don't always come into this part of the Somme battlefields, but a lot of Australians come here because of the Adelaide name and for other reasons as well, which we'll come to shortly. But when you come into this cemetery and you walk around it, you can see that it reflects the nature of the fighting here around Villers-Bretonneau in 1918 with not just Australian graves although they are the predominant nationality that you see when you walk along the rows of headstones but there are the British units from all of those divisions that we've spoken about in particular from the 8th division the 18th Eastern division and the 58th London division you'll see quite a few London territorial battalions like the shiny 7th the 7th London's post office rifles and so on when we begin to look at the Australian Greys, we see that they too represent the fighting here in terms of the different battalions that were involved in it. But when we 
begin to look at some of the personal stories behind those buried here, one of the first ones that we come to, uh, two men buried side by side with the same surname, Henderson. These are the Henderson brothers. Hugh, who was with the 35th Battalion, was killed on the 4th of April 1918, and Ronald, with the 18th Battalion, was killed on the 9th of April 1918. They were from Hunters Hill in New South Wales. Ron was a bank clerk who'd been awarded the Military Cross during the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917, and his brother Hugh had only joined in 1917 at aged 18. Again, we think of that period of the war, 1917, from a British perspective as a conscript period of the war, but there in Australia with an all-volunteer army, 18-year-olds are still stepping forward, 18-year-olds like Hugh Henderson stepping forward to join up as volunteers. These two men were killed on different parts of the battlefield around Villers-Bresno on different days, only a few days apart. And again, when you kind of think of that, you think about the parents back in New South Wales on the other side of the world receiving those two telegrams to say their boys had been killed. But the father was very keen to have them buried side by side. So when it came for the regrouping of burials in this area, he ensured that the brothers were buried as they are today here side by side in Adelaide Cemetery. I'd like to say this was a unique occurrence, but sadly there are all too many cemeteries along the Western Front where you'll find brothers buried side by side, killed often even on the same day. Not far away is the grave of Private Reginald Henry Martin. He died of wounds on the 8th of August 1918 while serving with the 29th Battalion Australian Forces, and he was from Wellington in Victoria. It's the inscription on many of these Australian graves. The Australian families didn't have to financially contribute towards the inscription, so you understandably see a lot more inscriptions on Australian headstones from the Great War. John Laffin published a really good book, one of his best books, I think, about these inscriptions. It's out of print now and difficult to find, but it's worth looking out for, and it gives us a bit of an insight into the way Australians mourned for their dead in the Great War. And on Reginald Martin's grave, his parents put, My boy, one of the brave defenders of Amiens. An even more poignant and heart-rendering inscription is found close by on the grave of Private Alfred Kingworth Mallion. He was killed with the 48th Battalion on the 3rd of May 1918, aged 22. He was a farmer. On his grave it says, I must go. I am ashamed to be seen without a soldier's uniform. And it's interesting how many of these Australian inscriptions do challenge our conventional idea of what mourning and sacrifice stands for. Maybe it was part of the developing Australian consciousness of that time. Maybe because they were on the other sides of the world and perhaps would never get to see this grave, the words on it matters even more. And although a proportion of these men who fought in Australian uniform in the Great War were born in Britain, what you do see a lot of is a connection to the Australian identity and a desire to remark upon that and record it, which in itself is interesting, perhaps something the subject of Australian inscriptions on headstones in the Great War, something we'll return to another day. But within this cemetery, there is a grave that is now empty. In plot three, row M, 
grave 13, there is a headstone, but there is no remains, no soldier buried there. And that's because on the 2nd of November 1993, this unknown Australian soldier that was once buried here was exhumed and taken back to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, where he's now buried in an honoured tomb. And this began at a period in which the Australian government was attempting to redress that subject that we've spoken of, the imbalance between the importance in the mind of Australian people of Gallipoli and the true importance of the sacrifice of those 45,000 diggers on the Western Front from 1916 until the end of the war. A desire by that government and successive governments to mark that Australian sacrifice and record it with memorial parks and memorials, new memorials. A lot of people have often referred to this as Anzachary, this kind of takeover of the Western Front battlefields. But for Australia and many empire and now Commonwealth nations, this was the point in which they took their first great steps on a world stage in a wider world. And it would always be important to them. And in many respects, although they'd erected unit memorials, there was no national commemoration of this. And I think within Australia, there was a desire to do that understandably and it was done in most cases pretty well and part of it was the desire to have an unknown soldier just like the power of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey although that had meant to symbolize not just Britain but the wider empire and the sacrifice of the missing from all those different nations Australia felt that they needed to have their own beacon to that great war brought back home to Australia now, no, at this stage, no soldier had ever been exhumed from a Commonwealth cemetery anywhere on the battlefields of either the First or the Second World War and brought home in this way. So this set a new precedence. And what happened subsequently over the following years was that other Commonwealth nations requested to do the same. So the Canadians brought back an unknown Canadian soldier from the battlefields at Vimy Ridge, that byword for their service in the Great War, which we've discussed on previous podcast episodes. And the New Zealand government did the same with an unknown New Zealand soldier from Caterpillar Valley on the Somme, where the New Zealanders had fought in 1916. So perhaps other Commonwealth nations may well do the same further down the line. Who knows? But it began here in November 1993, and it was quite some ceremony. The body was exhumed and then laid in state up at the Villas Bretonneau Cemetery, an Australian memorial, and then taken with all due reverence back to Australia to be placed in that special tomb in Canberra. A unique Australian headstone now marks the grave, and it brings many, many Australian visitors to Adelaide Cemetery because they may well have seen that tomb in Canberra, and here they can come to the spot where that digger, that unknown cobber, was taken back to his homeland. Leaving the cemetery, we go back slightly towards Amiens to the next junction, and then turn off into that wooded area we can see across to our left to the south, and we go through those woods where we can see amongst the trees the undulation. This is not quite the crater zone of the Somme in 1916, but it was an area of heavy artillery fire during that spring of 1918 and you can see some of the effects of that amongst the trees and it brings us out close to the village of Cachy. Cachy in 1916 during that battle of the Somme was behind the French lines it was a billeting area and there's also a French aerodrome here and 
Georges Guinamer, one of France's greatest aces of the First World War, who was shot down over Ypres in 1917 near the village of Polkapel, where his memorial, the stork in the middle of the village of Polkapel, marks his death and is close to the spot where he was shot down and buried, his grave later lost in the battles of 1917-18. But he flew from here, for example, and there was a little memorial panel in the village commemorating the airfield and commemorating Guinamer's role in the aerial combat over the Somme during that period of the war. But we'll not go into Cashy itself, we'll turn off and follow the road towards Villas Bretonneau, and on the edge of the warded area, just to the left-hand side of the road, is quite a humble little marker stone with a brass plaque which commemorates an important action that took place here on the 24th of April 1918, the first occasion in history when tanks fought tanks. This battle saw three British tanks, three Mark IV tanks, from the 1st Battalion Tank Corps, A Battalion Tank Corps, who came up against three German A7V tanks. Now, the tanks that the Germans used at this stage of the war in 1918, the ones they developed themselves, the A7V was a big armoured box, basically, on a low set of tracks. It was a different design to the British design, which was a rhomboid shape where the tracks went all the way round the shape of the tank. This one had 18 crew inside it, which is quite a considerable number of crew, and it must have been an even tighter fit inside that armoured box than it was inside a British tank. It had machine guns and it had a forward-firing 57mm gun. So it didn't have sponsons or turrets on the side of the tank like the British ones did, which meant the weapons could fire in different directions. The tank had to effectively be pointing in the direction that it was going to fire its weapon. The weapon could move slightly from left to right, but not in the same way that it could be deployed from the sponsons of British tanks, for example, with the six-pounders or their machine guns. So the British tanks that were here that had formed up on the edge of the wood to support the infantry that were defending this bit of ground and were trying to advance and recapture the village of Villas Bretonneau suddenly saw these three A7V tanks come out of the mist towards them. The Mark IVs moved forward, but the three Mark IVs, two of them, were female tanks. That meant that their sponsons had machine guns in them. Only one of them was a male tank with a six-pounder. The two machine gun employed tanks opened fire but realised that up against A7Vs with 57mm guns they weren't going to be able to achieve a lot and they pulled back. And the single tank that remained under the command of 2nd Lieutenant Francis Mitchell moved forward to try and take on these tanks. Now moving and firing was a difficult prospect in any tank whether it's a tank of the First or the Second World War and Mitchell's gunners failed to destroy any of the German tanks at this stage and one of the sponsons of the tank took a hit and one of the gunners was wounded. So what Mitchell decided to do was to stop the tank which was a risky prospect because it made him a sitting target basically but having stopped the gunners could take a better aim and they opened fire and took out one of the three tanks and then engaging the other two the fire from the six pounder made them made their crews nervous and they pulled their tanks away. So the Germans, having fled the field of battle and leaving one knocked-out tank behind them, had lost that first tank-versus-tank encounter. An encounter that would echo across the world in the battles that would follow a generation later and would echo here both in 1940 and 44, 
when at the beginning of the war, German panzers fought French tanks in this area, and in 1944, American tanks came up here as they advanced through the liberation of this region following the breakout from Normandy. Leaving the site of this first tank versus tank battlefield behind us, we go into the village itself and we head to the school of Villers-Bresseneau because the school was rebuilt with donations from Australia. And the whole school really is its own war memorial in the playground is a big sign saying, do not forget Australia. And generation after generation of young French children who've been educated here have grown up with that being part of their young lives. Remembrance of the Australian sacrifice here in the Great War is very, very strong in Villers-Bretonneau. But above the buildings is a museum, the Franco-Australian Museum. Now, this is a museum that dates back many decades, and I first came here in the 90s when I lived on the Somme. In those days, I would have described it as a private museum. It was small, not a huge amount of artefacts, but a lot of images. The Australian War Memorial had donated, showing some of the key moments and the key battles that Australians had taken part in in this sector of the Western Front. It remains that way today, and it's a really important local museum and gives us an insight into the connection that the French people in this area have with the remembrance of the Great War, and it's well worth a visit when you're in this sector of the Somme. One other building that I would have liked to have directed you to in Villers-Bretonneau was the Red Chateau. This was a chateau just astride the main Amiens-Saint Quentin road that up until the early 2000s was a, a Great War ruin. It was an original building that had been used during the fighting and been damaged during the fighting. And then in the immediate post-war period, the Imperial War Graves Commission and the Australian Graves Registration Unit had their headquarters in there. I recently picked up a collection of images taken by an Imperial Wargraves Commission photographer, and some of those were of the Red Chateau and the Australian headquarters that was there. This is where they based themselves to go out and find the Australian dead in this area and regroup them in cemeteries like Adelaide and Villers-Bresseneau, which we'll get to shortly. The chateau sat there as this Great War ruin, one of the largest Great War ruins in this area that you could take people to to get an insight into what the whole battlefield had once looked like. But sadly, around about the turn of the millennium, a somewhat short-sighted view, at least in my opinion, was taken by the local council to demolish the Red Chateau, demolish this Great War ruin and build a supermarket in its place. Now the world moves on and these men fought and died so that French people might be free to do whatever they wish but it was a sad loss I think to the Great War battlefield so it exists now in photographs only. So we'll leave the Franco-Australian Museum and then we'll turn off and go south out of Villers-Bretonneau down to our next stop at Crucifix Corner Cemetery. Crucifix Corner Cemetery is located on the southern part of the Villers-Bretonneau battlefield, near to a position known as Monument Farm and looking towards Lancer Wood and Hangard Woods to the south. And these were all critical locations in the fighting on this southern part of the village when the Germans pushed hard against Villers-Bretonneau and overrun the town and when the counter-attacks came in on that night of the 24th, 25th of April 1918. This was a cemetery initially started by the Canadian Corps in August of 1918 during the Battle of Amiens. 
as we mentioned in that battle, divisional burial officers went forward and buried the dead. And this was one of the sites selected in the early stage of the Canadian advance to bury their dead in the initial jump off towards the German lines. And from here, we could follow a line of the Canadian advance during that period, seeing all the little battlefield cemeteries along the way. The original plot, which is again plot one of the modern cemetery, was 90 graves all dating from that August 1918 period. But afterwards the site was expanded and graves were brought in from the surrounding battlefields. Graves now total 293 Australian, 287 British, 76 Canadian, 142 French and 2 Russian and there are 190 unidentified soldiers. So a cemetery that had begun as a Canadian burial ground eventually became predominantly an Australian one, linking it to the importance and the role of Australian troops in this area around Villers-Bretonneux in the early part of 1918. In addition to the burials that we see now, once upon a time there had been 241 additional French burials here and 10 German graves. The German graves were moved to a German military cemetery in the region, possibly at Vermandevilliers, and the French graves, as was the common practice, French families were given the option of taking their loved ones home, so to be buried in a family grave wherever in France they came from, or they could be reburied in a French national cemetery close by, and some of these men may have been moved to one of the French cemeteries on the Somme, or even to Notre-Dame-de-Lorette, which has graves of French soldiers from all over different parts of that northern sector of the Western Front. Why were there so many French burials here? Some of them may have been from the earlier 1916 period in cemeteries that have been concentrated here after the war, but the majority, I would guess, would be from August 1918 when the French, the often forgotten French, fought alongside the Canadians in this part of the Battle of Amiens. It was a Western Allied attack, the Battle of Amiens in August 1918, with the British to the north, then the Australians, then the Canadians, and then the French advancing not along the St Quentin Roman road, but the Montdidier, Amiens to Montdidier old Roman road. And the French were a vital link in that advance in the summer of 1918, and these burials reflect their important role in it. And also the role not just of French metropolitan troops, but of troops from their colonies, from French colonies as well, and we see that reflected in the Muslim graves that are in this cemetery. But the mention of two Russian soldiers may have surprised you, and these are Russian soldiers captured on the Eastern Front by the Germans and then employed as labour troops on the Western Front. Against the conventions of the time, a lot of them were used to build the Hindenburg Line, for example, in the winter of 1916-17, but they kept Russian troops as labour units in areas where the Germans had a lot of railways in northern France, Belgium, and none of these Russian prisoners that were employed in this way were kept in the, the best of conditions. Whether these were men who died and were subsequently moved here for burial, or whether they were men that had escaped and tried to get through the Allied lines and died in the process, that's all been lost in the mists of time. But they are some of many Russian burials that we find in cemeteries across this part of the Western Front landscape. When we stand at the entrance to Crucifix Corner Cemetery, we can see the division of the graves. The French graves, the crosses are on the left-hand side, and the Muslim graves, and then the Commonwealth graves on the right-hand side. 
There's a plaque in the cemetery placed here by the people of Villas Bretonneux in memory of the defenders of Villas Bretonneux on the 24th, 25th of April 1918, remembering the sacrifice of Australian and British troops here during that period. And when we look at the Australian graves that are in here, most of them date from that April 1918 period. And also there are casualties from the Battle of La Hamel just up the road in July of 1918, an important Australian attack that was a precursor to what happened here on the 8th of August 1918. And I know I often say it, but it is deserved of a podcast in its own right. And we will get to that at some point. Again, looking at the Australian inscriptions on the graves that are here, we come to the grave of Private Horace William Gibson, who was killed on the 4th of July 1918 with the 16th Battalion Australian Imperial Forces, aged only 19. His family had a verse from Tennyson placed on his grave, Forgive my grief for one removed, thy creature whom I found so fair. And when we look at other inscriptions in here, we see a lot of reference to Australia and sacrifice, a time to kill and a time to heal is on one grave. Our dear boy Jack, well done. That's what one parent placed on their son's grave here. And one of Australia's bravest and best. And these are all the sort of sentiments that we see on these Australian graves when we wander around these cemeteries where Anzacs, where Australians are buried on these Western Front battlefields and indeed at Gallipoli. Leaving Crucifix Corner behind, we'll go back through the town of Villas Bretonneau over the Amiens St Quentin Road and follow the green Commonwealth Wargrave signs up to the much larger cemetery up on the high grounds beyond the village. And when we get here, we can see the imposing entranceway. This is Villas Bretonneau Military Cemetery and behind it, the Australian Memorial to the Missing. And since more recent times behind it as well, the Sir John Monash Centre, the Australian Memorial Centre here on the Somme battlefields. This cemetery is situated on the high ground, that vital high ground outside of the village of Villas Bretonneau. And it's sat facing towards the city of Amiens, that great prize that the Germans attempted to take in the spring of 1918. The views, even from the entrance, are quite spectacular across this rolling Somme landscape and in the distance on a clear day you can see the spires of the city of Amiens. This is how close the Germans got at that period of the war. It was a post-war created cemetery by moving in battlefield graves, isolated burials and smaller cemeteries from the surrounding battlefield around Villas Bretonneau and La Hamel and Corby and this southern part of the Somme Valley landscape. It's mainly a 1918 cemetery from the spring and then the summer with the battles with the Germans were trying to break through and then the final battle, the breakout on the Somme with that Battle of Amiens. But there are some 1916 plots where graves, when the battlefields were cleared much later on in the 30s and a few graves were moved in here for reburial at that time, this being then an open cemetery for burials. Burials total 2,144, so it's a sizeable Commonwealth Cemetery and breaking these down into the different nationalities there are 734 Australian, 557 British, 254 Canadian, one South African and two New Zealanders from the Second World War. Of these burials 608 are unidentified. As we walk in through the entrance 
we go up the steps and the ground curves ahead of us rises following the contours of the landscape and the graves follow that contour too it's quite an unusual cemetery in that respect and ahead of us is the top of the tower of the australian memorial although it's not a, a strict division largely to our left are australian and canadian graves and largely to our right are british graves and there are some british burials that dates from the 11th of november 1918 men who died in medical establishments that were in this area of wounds received on the front in the final days of the war or more likely of influenza that was then sweeping its way across Europe. Whenever I come into this cemetery my first stop is by walking across to the left into a large plot of Australian graves and following our look at inscriptions on Australian headstones we come to the grave of Sergeant Philip James Ball MM of the 44th Battalion Australian Imperial Forces who was killed on the 28th of March 1918, right at the beginning of that fighting around Villers Bresseneau. Philip Ball had actually been born in Birmingham in Britain, but his father had once lived in Australia and obviously had imbued a, a love of Australia into his children, and Philip had emigrated there in the Edwardian period to become a farmer in Fremantle. His sister was also living in Australia at the time, and he joined the AIF, fought with them in the battles of 1916-17 and been awarded the Military Medal for his bravery at Ypres in 1917. But it's not his bravery that we've just come to mark here, it's the inscription on his grave. And we've talked about how some of the Australian inscriptions challenge our conventional concepts of remembrance and what the war and the sacrifice meant to people. And this one really pushes hard against that. It says... I fought and died in the great war to end all wars. Have I died in vain? Now that kind of anti-war sentiment is pretty unusual. I can think of only a handful of graves along the Western Front battlefields or indeed any great war battlefield where I've seen that. According to the archives of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, it was an inscription that his sister Claire had added to the grave it could be that the parents had passed away by the time the cemetery was made permanent and she was listed as his next of kin. And I often used to think to myself, when was this inscription added? Maybe it was made in the 30s, closer to the advent of a Second World War, but it appears to be quite early on in the 20s. So even that questioning of what the war and the sacrifice had been all about dates back to that early post-war period. Some people had to try and make sense of their loss some people pushed hard against that loss and couldn't see the sense in it. But it's pretty rare that we see it expressed in this way. A common inscription is, someday we will understand, and that can mean all sorts of things. I don't necessarily think it's a questioning of sacrifice and a questioning of the war. But as the decades passed and the realities of what the Great War had been for the men who'd fought there became apparent, I'm sure more and more questioned it and echoed those sentiments of many veterans in the 1930s and all for what and all for what and we see the echo of the outcome of that sentiment really as we walk now up from Sergeant Ball's grave up over the rise of the cemetery past the graves of Australians and Canadians of British soldiers 
who had fought here in the spring of 1918 in the battles of the summer too, up towards the tower of the Australian Memorial to the Missing. Because what we see is damage to this cemetery, damage caused in the fighting here in May 1940 at the beginning of the Second World War in Western Europe, when German tanks and infantry and aircraft coming down the main road towards Amiens just as the Kaiserschlacht had brought German troops in the spring of 1918. This time, troops of Nazi Germany were trying to break through here and push hard against the French defenders of the city of Amiens. The cemetery came under attack. I've read all sorts of different descriptions of what happened here, some describing how a tank drove through parts of the cemetery and fired at the French defenders who had an observation post in the top of the tower, others that it was aircraft attack where Stukas had come down and strafed and dropped bombs. Whatever the reason, the cemetery was very badly damaged during that period and the pockmarks of the impact of shrapnel from bombs or tank fire, whatever it is, is very visible on different parts of the cemetery as we move up towards the main memorial itself. This is one of those places where the Great War meets the next war, the Second World War. And if we jump on from 1940 to 44, there are some excellent photographs of tanks, British tanks, advancing up the road that we've just taken from Villas Bretonneux, moving across this part of France as they liberate this region following the breakout from the battles in Normandy. British troops had advanced, crossed the Seine, moved up through that part of northern France, got to the Somme line where they thought the Germans would defend it. The Germans didn't. They pulled back across the Somme. So the British entered Amiens, crossed the River Somme, and troops came up through here, heading up towards Lille. But as we look at the pockmarks on the tower and the structure around us, we also note the long lists of names. This is Australia's memorial to the missing for France in the Great War. The missing for Flanders are commemorated on the Menin Gates, and here 10,765 Australian soldiers who were killed from 1916 until the end of the war within France and who have no known grave are commemorated on this Lutyens design memorial. Lutyens, one of the principal architects of the Imperial War Graves Commission, designed not just the memorial but the cemetery as well. The names of the Australian soldiers on these panels represent a broad spectrum of different battles in which the Australians took part in. Almost half of the names on here are Australians who fell at Pozieres on the Somme in 1916 in the fighting for Pozieres village, the OG lines around the Pozieres windmill, or the battles for Mouquet Farm. But the missing from Fromel are commemorated here, the missing from Bullecourt, and indeed the missing from those last 100 days of the Great War. Australia and the Australian Imperial Force and all of its units brought together following the Battle of La Hamel the creation of an Australian corps in the approach to the Battle of Amiens in August 1918 saw Australia and Canada at the very tip of the spear in those last 100 days of the war. And for Australia, that is very much reflected in the casualties that we see listed on this memorial to the missing. It was the last of the memorials constructed. It was unveiled by the new king, King George VI, in July 1938, just a few months before Hitler took troops into the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia 
and everyone realised that the approach to war was now inevitable. It's an irony, I guess, that the last memorial built was the first one to be almost destroyed at the beginning of the next war, and it took a lot of years after 1945 to bring the memorial back to what it looked like just a few short years before when it had been unveiled in 1938. Behind the memorial to the missing is a new addition to this site, the Sir John Monash Centre. This was a project commissioned in the early 2000s by the Australian government. I myself was involved in the process for selecting a site to build a centre like this. And eventually in 2006 a decision was made and this project that we see today was commissioned, it being eventually finished and unveiled for the centenary of the battles around Villas Bretonneau in April 2018. It's a modern museum of Australia's contribution to the battles on the Western Front in the Great War. It's modern in its approach. It uses multimedia to explain different aspects of the history. And it's something that when you come here is worth visiting to gain a greater understanding of Australia's role in these battles. It doesn't over-push the Australian participation, but it makes sure that we go away on understanding what a sacrifice Australia made on these battlefields of the Western Front, and that's important to remember. But we'll return to the memorial to the missing now, and you can go in through a gate at the base of the tower and take the steps up to the very top where there's an orientation table. And up there you can look across this landscape for many, many miles on a clear day, back towards Amiens, in the opposite direction, follow the line of the old Roman road as it heads into the distance towards the city of Saint-Quentin. We can see the church spires of the many villages where the fighting took place in the summer of 1918. And across to our left, the trees mark the snaking valley of the river Somme and beyond it, the high ground. There, the battlefields of 1916 are in the distance. Here, in front of us, the world of 1918, the world of the new warfare that signalled those last 100 days that would bring the Great War to its conclusion. The crisscross paths of history, with echoes of two world wars across this ground. Here, like some great king of no man's land, we survey this landscape of more than a century ago a landscape where men of so many different nations fought and died, that eternal landscape of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.